Hey guys, welcome to episode 120 of a True Crime Couple podcast. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we hope you had a nice few weeks since our last episode. We've missed you. We have. As always, at the top of the show, we want to thank everyone who has gone out of their way to be amazing. Whether that takes the form of a review, joining Patreon, sharing us on social media, checking out our sponsors, or just listening to us. We love you all for doing all of it. And we will be mentioning our new Patreon supporters at the end of this episode. So if that's you, just wait until the end and we'll tell you how much we love you. Well, John, I usually ask you if you're ready to get started, but today I'm going to be honest, nothing could prepare you for this one. It's Amityville Horror meets White House Farm Murders with an extra like topping of mystery. I like mysteries. I really do. You do. And this is definitely a whodunit. I love them. So let's do it. I also want to kind of just say that I am super prepared for this assignment. Whenever we do an international case, I always feel like I have to especially be on top of my game because I'm outside of my element. I mean, really anytime I leave the state of New Jersey, I'm outside of my element, but I try really hard. So because I've done so much research and this really means a lot to the country from which this case originates from, this is going to be a two-part episode. And the first episode is going to be released, obviously, this weekend because you're listening to it right now. But the next episode is going to be next weekend. So again, just like uh, from episode 118, it's going to be three weeks in a row of True Crime Couple. I think everyone likes that. I think, we, I mean, we got a lot of feedback from that. Um, I know people were so excited. They're like, oh, another episode. I, Guys, I wish we could release every week. It's just my work schedule. It's just way too much. Just life gets in the way. Yes. <laughs> so I just always want to do the cases that we cover justice. And especially with an international case, that becomes difficult because context and location of a crime just means so much to it that I try to soak in everything I can without having ever visited there. So it becomes difficult, especially when you don't or you're not familiar with the country. Like, at least if it's different states, that's OK, because I kind of understand the, the national identity of the United States. Yeah, that's well put. And like I said before, this is kind of like a whodunit case that has polarized the country where it took place. Beautiful New Zealand. So I'm sure our listeners from New Zealand know right away what case I'm talking about. And to all of our listeners from New Zealand, I hope that I give this justice. But please have some grace with my pronunciations. (laughs) I have read three books and countless pages of evidence reports to bring you this episode. So I just want to mention those books at the top. Um, the books that I read were David and Goliath by Joe Karam, The Mask of Sanity by James McNeish, and Black Hands by Martin Van Bayen. Two of the books I read um, fell on one side of the coin and the other one fell on the other. And I wanted to make sure that I read books that represented both sides pretty well because I don't want to be skewed in the presentation of facts because really that's what it comes down to is the presentation of the facts and the evidence. Very smart. I like that. Yeah. I mean, two of the books are kind of like barely in print anymore. One completely is not. 
So we actually planned to do, well, I planned to do this episode a long time ago, but it took so long for the books to come in. So, and they were used. And uh, one of the books, I guess someone was like doing research too, but they were using highlighter, but they like highlighted the whole book. And the whole time I'm reading, I'm like, this is, that's just not what highlighting is, dude. <laughs> yeah, you're only supposed to like highlight important facts, yes. not the whole page. But like, you'll see with this case, you feel like everything is important. So like, I understand the trauma that they were going through and <laughs> trying to like find out what was important. But at the same time, I'm like, the whole book might as well be highlighted. That's actually really funny. <laughs> so without any further ado, I am going to announce to you, we are going to be covering the Bain family murders. Now, it has been stated by Martin Van Bean that the Bain family murders and the subsequent trials that followed have been on the national conscience of New Zealand since they were committed in 1994. That is because the Bains represented the working middle class population of the country, but also because it was proof that your fears regarding those who live with you may be true. Do you ever really know the people you share a home with or a bed with? Could someone under the same roof as you snap and turn the place where you are supposed to feel the most safe into the place where you are being hunted? Well, the Bain family murders were proof that it could. And if it could happen to this average family, why couldn't it happen to you? Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. All right, so I think it makes the most sense to start at the beginning. The inception of the Bain family. Robin and Margaret married in 1969 after they met at a Presbyterian church function in Dunedin, which is the second largest city in the South Island of New Zealand. The couple was immediately described as an odd pairing, as Robin was an introvert and Margaret was extremely extroverted. But, as you know, sometimes opposites attract, and it works because they bring each other out of their comfort zones. Before Robin had met Margaret, he had lived in Papua New Guinea for five years with his church group. There he taught underprivileged children. He had told Robin that it was something he very much enjoyed and might want to go back to. After returning from Papua New Guinea, he had a new interest in learning about the Maori culture from New Zealand. Although the books I read differ in their opinion about the crime, one thing they agree on is that Robin was a very forward-thinking person in his belief that the indigenous people of the Pacific Southwest should be appreciated, understood, and celebrated, versus shunned, as some of his contemporary counterparts did. Margaret had also attended a teacher's college, and when she met Robin, she had been employed to prepare educators for their first jobs in the classroom. She was ambitious and a real go-getter. She had grown up in a house with many siblings and considered herself to be very intelligent and a very religious woman. In the fall of 1971, Margaret became pregnant with the first of her many children. 
Many in both Margaret and Robin's family were slightly worried about whether or not the couple was up to the task of becoming parents. If their house was evidence of the job they would do as parents, things weren't looking too good. In the beginning of their marriage, visitors stated that the house was unkempt and dirty. One friend even went as far to say that the house was in shambles. There had been talk about cleaning up the house before the baby was born, but the couple didn't end up being able to do so because David Bain came into this world months earlier than expected. At just five pounds and five ounces, David was prematurely born on March 27, 1972. I think this is something that is a really key point in the Bain family story is there is going to be this continuous talk about the neatness of their home. Most of what we hear is going to be anecdotal from people that have visited the house, um, witnessed what the family was like, witnessed what the house is like. So in no way am I shaming them for not being clean. Like families levels of clean are all different, right? And it has to do with people's personalities. And sometimes, you know, like we inherit that from our parents and what we grew up with, because that's your borderline on what is basically acceptable. It's clean. Do you know what I mean? No, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I think you hit, I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, everyone, everyone's level of cleanliness is different. Correct. And it's what they're accepting. So, yeah, like you said, I, I, I don't think that that's that big of a deal. Yeah. And when the people comment on the Bain family home, they're not just saying like there's things all over the place and there's dishes in the sink. They're talking about kind of like that next level of uncleanliness of, hey, this might not be safe for children to be in an environment that is this unclean. Also, let's add that you can't really say that about somebody like on like how that they're going to raise that child in an environment like that on, until they're like in it and doing it. You know what I mean? They might be what you deem as unfit in the beginning before the child's born, but they could turn that whole thing around. People change when they have children. I mean, I don't know about this in this case, maybe, but it happens like your I whole thing turns saying. around like your whole life and what you what you accept. It changes when you have children. I think many of us can attest to that of. You know, how you used to keep your room as a child versus how you keep your home as an adult. It's two totally different things. But in this case, it doesn't change. All right. Well, it stays pretty bad. Wishful thinking. Also adding in that David Bain was born on my mother's birthday as well. Oh, very cool. Yes. Shout out, mom. Yes. Shout out, mom. After David was born, Margaret stopped working to take care of him. Although working was something that she actually loved to do, She would never work again, as the couple went on to have many children. In 1974, while Margaret was pregnant with the couple's second child, they made the decision to move to Papua New Guinea. Robin had loved his job teaching there in the mid-60s, and he had always longed to return to spread the word of the Presbyterian Church and to teach and lecture at the many schools there. Margaret agreed. Margaret, like Robin, was a very forward-thinking, free-spirited person, and the thought of relocating and immersing herself in a new culture was something that was exciting for her. 
Before they left New Zealand, the couple purchased a home at 65 Every Street in the Anderson Bay area of Dunedin. The plan was for them to find a tenant to receive rent payments while they were out of the country. Another thing to know about the Bain family is that they are incredibly frugal with their money, but they do own several properties and they do have a good amount of money. And that probably gives them the opportunity to go and do this in other countries and stuff. Yeah. You know, when you have property and money, you, you, you can kind of do whatever you want. <laughs> right. Well, the, the Bain family is actually going to be in Papua New Guinea for 15 years. Wow, that's a long time. Yes. And the children were, were raised there. So really, they had more of an association with that area than they did New Zealand. Very interesting. On June 26, 1974, Arawa was born while David worked for a program run by the Presbyterian Church. In their new setting of New Britain, David was given the position of principal for a teacher's college. While David worked long hours and was thriving within his position at the college and within the church, Margaret was immersing herself in the cultures and traditions of her new surroundings. A friend who visited from New Zealand noted that Margaret seemed to be enamored with the fact that within the local communities, it was the older women who held the power because of their wisdom and spiritual connections. She had similar ideas of herself within her own family and was very attracted to this belief system. She tried very much to be on equal footing with these women and tried to integrate herself into their world, but you know, she tried to do that without much luck because she is an outsider. Yeah, it's hard to gain the trust of, you know, the people there when you're an outsider. So, I mean, at least she's trying, right? She is trying. And, you know, it's nice that she is in this new kind of location and she's kind of adapting beliefs versus thinking that her beliefs are superior. So it does, you know, show a lot about her character. Yeah, good point. Whenever the Bain family was visited during this time, the same comments were made about their living conditions. They were very poor, as both Robin and Margaret did not put a value on cleaning their home. They fancied themselves intellectuals, concerned more with learning and the culture than they did cleaning. However, it seemed to go beyond just this because many of the visitors would later say that they had been concerned for the welfare of the children because the conditions in the home were so bad. On March 19, 1976, Leniette was born. The couple had three children now, two beautiful girls and a son. By the time Margaret had given birth to Leniette, the family had moved from New Britain to Port Moresby, as Robin was given the new position of senior lecturer at the college. As David was around school age, he had been set to start attending school. However, this was not something that he did on a regular basis, as Margaret was kind of back and forth with her decision on whether or not to send David to school, or, you know, being that she was a trained teacher, to homeschool him herself, something that she thought she felt she was more capable of doing than the outside school. So this is something that's uh, going to be an interesting choice to make. And I think it kind of formulates David's personality because from an early age, 
he instead of spending time with children his own age, you know, even though they're, they're from different cultures, he was kind of kept at home. So you're putting a child in an environment where they're different from everyone else and their homes have basic core value differing beliefs. So he already kind of probably as a child feels like an outsider. And now you're saying, well, now you can't be in a school environment. So I think that's going to hinder a lot of David's social and emotional health moving forward. Yeah, like his growth, really. Like, I think you could sum that up just by saying his growth. I mean, if he, I mean, they're also moving a lot, too. So that doesn't help. Well, they only moved twice, technically. True, but think about, I mean, maybe anybody listening, if you've ever been in one place and then moved to another when you were a kid and had to kind of get used to going to school or getting used to a new area, that's, like, very taxing on a young kid. Yes, it is. So even though he, is he being homeschooled? At this point? Well, it's back and forth. Okay. So, like, that too. Like, if you put that into the mix, that can't be easy. No, and every time he goes back to school, it's kind of like he's starting school all over again. Yeah, it must have been hard. Those who live near the couple described them as lighthearted and friendly. However, it was clear that they lived a very unconventional lifestyle. And unfortunately, still a very unsanitary one. Now, the reason their lifestyle could be considered unconventional for 1976 was because the couple married their very strong Presbyterian beliefs with that of the cultural traditions of their surroundings. So it was a very kind of like new age style of parenting that when people from New Zealand would come and be with them, they'd be like, kind of like, what's going on here? It's just not traditional. Yeah. So, you know, especially in the 70s, they... People thought it was wrong, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. It's just different. Yeah. On New Year's Day of 1980, Stephen Bain was born, completing the Bain family, Margaret, Robin, and their four children. Throughout their time abroad, the family would often receive visitors to their home, or they would travel back to New Zealand themselves, something that they usually did every three years. It was during these visits that Margaret's family noticed that David, who was nine years old at this point, had not reached the academic milestones that a child should have at that age. For example, he didn't know how to read or perform simple math. And at nine years old, that's, that's very low. So at the urging of her family, Margaret made the decision to send David to school full time. But at this point, he was so behind that he struggled in school academically. Also, socially, as it was an international school and there was no one that he truly connected with. Now, as an educator, I know that there's a direct correlation between poor performance in school and a student's social and emotional health. And it's sad that during David's most formative years, this is what he's experiencing. And it's going to formulate how he makes relationships for the rest of his life and also his own self-esteem. Yeah, it's actually really sad because you don't want to be the kid that, like, the kids, other kids make fun of for maybe not understanding something or just not being, you know, quote-unquote smart like everybody else. Right. So that could be difficult. Because he's trying to fit in socially, but he also has to get around the fact that 
as a nine-year-old, he can't read. So when his peers see that in a school setting, they're more apprehensive to accept him. It's just this, unfortunately, it's just the reality of the world and the way kids' minds work and things like that. But it also really affects his self-confidence. Yeah, it's sad to see a nine-year-old kid have so many roadblocks just to go to school. It's, you know, and to learn just normal things, you know? Right. And it also builds an anger. You know, I agree with you there. It does. It really does. You know, I always I always felt like uh, that – I can relate to that because I used to have some troubles in school early on, you know. So I can understand like it builds like uh, uh, maybe like a little bit of a resentment towards maybe like, you know, your parents just – you know, you start to not like who you are and, you know. Or your peers. Or your, your peers, teachers. right. So the, the, it's really not a good thing. I don't know. It's really hard to explain, but I could relate to the kid. Right. No, totally. Your frustrations turn to resentment, which turns to anger. And yeah. you don't realize it's happening that way, but it just does. Oh, also, and he's not in control. At nine years old, you're not in any sort of con- you know, possibility to be in control of the situation and the path that you're going down. Right. It's sad. And also from an outside perspective, it was stated that David had a bit of separation anxiety with his mother. Because think about it, he's been spending every second with Margaret, and now he's being taken away from her. So that also has become really difficult because he's now reliant on his mother for everything as kind of like a caregiver, a teacher, and a friend. And now that safety net is being removed from him. So his mother kind of continues to be a safety net for him throughout his life. I didn't even think about that. Mm Mm-hmm. We're can, getting down deep yeah. into it. <laughs> can you say emotional damage at this point? Yeah, um, I would say. I would are, say some emotional damage is being created. Yes. All right. So here we're going to take a break to talk about our first sponsor of the show. So during this time, Margaret began expressing to people that she was close to, that she was unhappy with her situation. She had been suffering from intense migraines and the stress of being a stay-at-home mother to her children. She was thinking about what her life could have been, and she began to grow resentful towards David, who was able to have a career. Margaret was upset because she felt herself to be the intelligent one, the ambitious one, and her husband really wasn't like that. He was more introverted and laid back. So she kind of had this resentment that she was wasting her talents and that the family could have been more successful if she had been the one out there in the workforce. I mean, she's not wrong in a way, I guess, you know, I mean, she has resentment, but it's, I feel like I don't, I don't want to say resentment's healthy, but (laughs) like maybe she could have made something for herself better than uh, what she has going now. I mean, obviously she wanted children and, and she's happy with that, but you know, maybe she just wanted more uh, for herself. I mean, I think that's in in doses, it's healthy. No, I agree with you. And I think that it just is inevitable when it comes from, you know, being in a state, being a stay at home mother is a very difficult job. I could only imagine four children. That's a lot. But you feel, you know, what could I have been like you just wonder that's all especially when you know she had ambitions before she chose to be a stay-at-home mother 
like she was going to college to be a teacher as well. So I think there's like this added layer of this that other families don't really experience because she was trained to do the same thing that Robin's doing. So she's thinking like I could have done it better. Right. Also, I want to just clarify. You said that she resented David. You meant Robin. Yes, I did. Okay. Just want to make sure. I did. I, I, I know. I. It was so funny because I've been doing that the whole time I've been writing the episode. I've been like <laughs> interchanging them. I mean, that's definitely foreshadowing. Right, cause Ro- yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think this is just kind of a natural thing to feel. But if it's not dealt with appropriately, it can cause resentments in a marriage. 100%. But even though Robin was the person who was out in the workforce bringing home the money for the family, it was really Margaret who had control over the family. This is something that she said she needed. Um, Upon reflection with a friend, Margaret once revealed that she had been abused by her own father. Now, what kind of abuse took place or to what extent is unknown to us because we really only know that through the interview of one friend. When he was younger, Robin was described as an easygoing, quiet guy. So this dynamic kind of worked for him. So remember in the beginning of their relationship, people were like, well, they're never going to work because he's so introverted and she's extroverted. Well, that's the dynamic they fall into within their relationship. And even though, you know, Robin's the one out there in the workforce kind of doing everything, Margaret is essentially the head of the household. She makes every decision for the family, whether it be with the children, with the finances, with the houses, with the moves. Like, that's always what Margaret does. Yeah. Listen, I don't think that there's anything necessarily wrong with that. Some people... Uh, you know, some people see it differently. Like I always say, it's like in a marriage, you have two sides. Sometimes people can do, you know, each side can do both, but in other, in other situations, it's not that way. And you have people who are, uh, I classify them, they're the boat, you know, and then you have the compass, you know, together they provide a very good unit separately, maybe not so much. So, you know, it's nothing wrong with that. No, it's a dynamic that could work for a lot of people, but um, it doesn't necessarily work for this couple in the long term because as time goes on, people say that Robin kind of like hollowed out. He became the shell of the person that he once was. Like he kind of just like went through the motions and allowed Margaret to kind of like take the reins on everything. Yeah, almost like he kind of gave up a little bit. Yes. And of course, we're just going through this. Like, we're not judging this family. We're just saying, like, we're setting, I'm setting the stage of the dynamics for you. So, like, because it's going to have a lot to do with motive moving forward. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Now, just as an interjection here, we don't know the realities of the home life of the Bain family. And we truly never will. We just know snippets of life, snapshots from what the members of the family told others or from what other people observed, but never will we really know the whole story. I mean, think about it. Say someone was going to write a book about your family, John, right? Okay. Entire thing from when your parents got together 
to like you right now. But the only source they had were friends, colleagues, and maybe a few family members. I mean, it definitely wouldn't be complete. I'll tell you that much. Exactly. Like, it could never reveal the whole picture. Or even, like, what each person is thinking. Because we really don't get to hear that from them. So, just remember, this is us pulling snapshots together. And when do you reach out to people when you're at your moments of extreme happiness or extreme frustration or extreme sadness. So that is what we're hearing. But we have to realize, I'm sure there were probably like normalcies or even keeled moments or happy moments. We're just kind of getting the stuff everyone talks about. Yeah, I think the time, the timeline and the marriage can be convolute. Like that whole thing can be a little convoluted, like by everyone's testimony. Right. And now this is just this is one reason why the case is so difficult, because all we have are these snapshots, but we're trying to solve a crime with these snapshots. Right. So. But that's that's the job. Someone's got to do it. right? Someone's got to do it. (laughs) Okay, so back into kind of where we were. This leads us to 1988 when the Bain family moves back to New Zealand. They stated that the catalyst for their return was the rising crime rates and the fact that they knew a girl, the daughter of a friend, that had been beaten and raped in Port Moresby. When they returned, the plan was to travel around the country and visit their families that they hadn't seen in a while, and then return home to the house that they purchased on every street 15 years prior. So basically, like, their tenant had left, and they were going to be taking over. Okay. I mean, I wonder if there's something more um, that made them move. Like, I wonder if there's something we don't know. We'll get into that a little bit later. Okay. But just kind of keep the reason why they left in your head. Okay. Now, unfortunately, the home that the family returned to was not what they thought it would be. After 15 years of never making repairs and having tenants that didn't treat it well, the house was uninhabitable. It took the family weeks of hard work for them to even live there. Once they were able to move in, the kids were sent to school. David was 16, Arwa was 14, Leniette was 12, and Stephen was 8. All but Arwa struggled in school both academically and socially. In the meantime, the family was surviving on Robin's new salary as a relief teacher, which is similar to a substitute teacher in the U.S. or a long-term leave replacement. This new situation was really difficult because it put a strain on the family for many reasons. First, the only home the children had ever known was in Papua New Guinea, not New Zealand. So they are not truly acquainted with the nuances of the culture, which is a hard thing when you're middle school and high school age. Absolutely. They're going to look at you and think you're weird, you know, because <laughs> they're not used to seeing certain things maybe that the kids are doing, you know? Right. And the last thing a teenager wants to be is considered different or weird. Of course. Especially when you're trying to fit in in a new school. Yeah. So socially, they were struggling. 
Because the children had fluctuated between homeschooling and school, because Margaret kind of never really stopped doing that, they were academically behind, which caused frustration and low self-esteem like we talked about before. Next, the family had been used to kind of collecting rent from the borders that they had on every street on top of Robin's salary, which had been really good. But now they were living in the home, so it was lost income. They had to spend money to fix it up. And on top of that, Robin was disheartened because he had gone from being like the principal at a teacher's college to now a substitute teacher. So it was a hit to his ego and the family's finances. So needless to say, getting back to life in New Zealand wasn't as easy as the family thought it was originally going to be. Yeah, and I also feel this is even more weight on a marriage that's already shaky. I mean, that's what it seems like to me because, I, I mean, this is all I know so far. But I think, I think when it comes to marriages, I think that one of the biggest things that can ruin it if it's not put in check, is finances. So like you oh, said, yeah. he's now making way less. His position's changed. Um, they have a lot of the sources of their income pro- is either gone or halved. So yeah, that could be a big reason that's going to make things probably shakier. <laughs> yeah, totally. Because although Margaret made every decision in the marriage, Robin brought a check home. And now he wasn't doing that. Right. So it's going to make him feel less valued as a man and a contributor to the family. I hear that. So that brings us to 1990, where Margaret is going to have some interesting beliefs during this time and moving forward. And it'll kind of take us all the way through up until when the, the family, the murder of the family is committed. So, like, these beliefs start in 1990 and go forward from then. First, I just want to mention, this entire time, the children have been brought up in a very strict Presbyterian home. Religion had always been a part of their lives. However, now it was beginning to turn into something a little different. Margaret was really connecting to her spiritual side. She said that she sensed evil presences and she would have to exercise those evil spirits if she ever sensed them. She also believed that an evil entity was responsible for things, like what was printed in the newspaper or her children getting sick. There was just kind of like evilness and spirit, bad spirits all around her that she always felt the constant need to um, clear or exercise. All right. Um, I don't mean to be disrespectful. But do you think at all that she might be suffering from maybe like a psychotic break or something? I think that um, she was definitely suffering from delusions. Okay. Because, you know, I mean, that's not normal to just feel that way. Like even the most spiritual of people, I don't think that that's something that would cross their mind that way. No. And it's almost contradictory to her religious Presbyterian beliefs. And they kind of speak more to the cultural understandings that she received and kind of adopted while she was traveling yeah so it's very different and a very unique situation okay margaret also believed that she was spoken to through her dreams so in early 1990 she chose to no longer sleep in the home with the rest of her family she slept out in a caravan 
And the caravan was um, something that was kept on the back of the property. And I just to like explain it, um, we are going to put pictures up on the Instagram, but the caravan was on the back of the property and the property that the Bain family owned was actually quite large on every street. So the caravan wasn't just like in the backyard. It was pretty, it was a bit of a walk away from the main house. Okay. So she's not sleeping with the family any longer. It's weird to alienate yourself like that from, I mean, like I can understand if like uh, things are getting so bad that the, the, you know, the husband and wife are, I need to be separated to a point. Right. But to separate your, yourself from your children though, I find that a little odd. Well, I think that she didn't um, want to be interrupted because she felt like she was doing important work was really what she thought. Okay. And, you know, she likes to exercise control over her family. So it wasn't, you know, I don't want to speak negatively about someone who has passed away or a victim in any of our cases, but she was described as being controlling and manipulative to her children at times. Okay. So she said that she had to be in the caravan because she needed uninterrupted sleep because her dreams were so important And she also needed time to wake slowly so she could interpret and write about the dreams that she had. It was also during this time that she expressed her belief that the kids were old enough to completely clean the house by themselves and make all of their own meals. Now, cleaning the house wasn't something that Margaret usually did. Um, So nothing has ever been modeled for the children as to what cleaning should look like in a household. I'm sure they knew from visiting friends and stuff, but they don't know. Right. And now she's saying the the responsibility of the household is now on all four of the children. So any little cleaning or cooking that she had done, she now completely stops and tells the children they need to pick up. It's interesting because what it sounds like to me is that she is relinquishing all of her responsibilities. I'm, and I'm not talking like cooking and cleaning. I'm talking about just providing for the child like the children period like parenting parenting like even if it's emotional it seems like she's just relinquishing all of it away i would say that that would probably be yeah and kind of filling those gaps with things that don't make any sense like having to write down her dreams and things of that nature but like it just seems very odd behavior for a grown woman to be doing so now you're gonna see kind of two reactions from her children. One, they either cling to her, wanting her approval, wanting her mothering, right? Especially David, because he he's always been very close to her. Or them completely back away and kind of want nothing to do with her. It's interesting. Yeah. And that you see through the um the girls. Because I'm sure they want their mother to be very mothering to them, like any girl wants. Of course. Yeah. So during the colder months, Margaret did not like to sleep in the caravan because obviously it was cold. So Robin did. So now they kind of do a flip flop and now Margaret's in the house. Now, one could think here, was this like a manipulation to eventually get Robin to be in the caravan? So he just wasn't in the house and they didn't have to deal with him. Because the the power move later on is that Margaret is telling the children, oh, we just need to get kind of rid of Robin. 
Yeah, that's actually a good point. I'm curious. Um, maybe we'll find out later. But I'm curious to see, like, if she had any influence on her children to talk badly of her husband. Yes. That's because that's Very interesting. Much so. Because even though she has neglected being a mother to these children, like you said, those children are looking for any like like um, motherly love. And they would want to seek her approval. Right. So if he if she was talking badly about the father to them, I feel like she could kind of sway them to do her bidding. It's very interesting, John. Yeah. That's a good perspective. Yeah. And you are going to see that with most of her children. There's there is one child that tends to speak up for Robin, but that becomes very complicated. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in this episode. But she becomes shunned. Yeah. I also want to mention all it takes. All it takes is a vulnerable child and a seed that is planted. I I know. You know, that's really all it ever is. And and it could be about anything. Like, even just how you perceive your own father moving forward. You know, that's it doesn't have to be, uh, let's say, possible murder. It could be anything. And that's hard on a child, period. Yeah, no, I agree with you, Johnny. Yeah. And in a really sad detail, um, one of Stephen's friends, oh, this is so sad. Um, he remembers, he asked Stephen, you know, and that's the youngest of the Bane children, why does your father sleep in a caravan? And you have to like, oh, your heart just like hurts hearing that because as a child, Stephen was probably so embarrassed, mortified, you know? Oh, yeah. And he kind of made up this lie to his friends. Like, oh, my dad's just sick and he doesn't want us to catch his cold. Yeah, I mean, that's... I just feel so yeah. sad for him. Me too. In August of 1990, Robin finally got a higher-paying job that better matched his credentials. He became the principal of a small elementary school in Tairi Mal, a small fishing village. Now, the living situation was interesting. Once he got this job, Robin drove the caravan to school and slept there three nights a week. He would sleep in the van and then use school facilities and the faculty room to bathe and feed himself. I mean, that's weird. It's weird that the principal is living on school grounds, I yeah. would say. Yeah. Um, the caravan was a bit of an eyesore, so he used to park it in front of the school, and then people started complaining about it. So he had to park it a few blocks away from the school moving forward. That's actually really funny. Now, when you say caravan, you pretty much mean just a motorhome with no bathroom, is what you're saying, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. So the reason Robin and Margaret gave for doing this to the kids was that Robin was saving on gas. But I looked this up, and the distance between the two locations is about 36 kilometers, or 26 miles. And I mean, commuting, that's really kind of nothing. I know people that would dream for that commute. Especially in the 90s. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't see gas prices being that high. I mean, I guess if you're being, like, frugal, like the couple was said to be, I could, I guess. But, I mean, how much money are you truly saving? I think it was more of the couple was just seemingly maybe happier not together. Most likely. I mean, but let's just add this. If they're frugal people, if they could save $5, they're probably going to do it. No, it's true. People do bizarre things. It's just... Some people, it's like almost like a game and pleasure to them. Where could I save money? And then they do it and they're happy about it. So I do think they're frugal. I just think they also were escaping the building tension in their marriage. Oh, 100%. I mean, having to live outside in a somewhat of a trailer, (laughs) kind of weird. 
It was so, a two, it was a twofer there. Yeah, this is like no shock at this point. Now, although Robin was eccentric and definitely had his own teaching style, which he definitely got in trouble in from time to time, he was very well liked by the community and the teachers that worked for him. They could tell that he really cared for the children. However, they did comment on how frail he had become in the time he spent there, as he would still be in that position when the murders took place. And they really just said he, he towards the end, looked very gaunt. That was the best way that they could explain it. They also commented on his personal hygiene. They said it wasn't the best and he always kind of had an odor about him. And most was said about the members of the family. I mean, as far as he's concerned, I mean, do you expect anything more considering his situation? He's living in a trailer outside of school, probably isn't getting the best sleep. He's probably not eating well. And his hygiene, he's, I mean, he's having to go into the school to to uh, bathe himself. And he's a teacher and he's a principal. Like, this is a high-stress situation. Yeah, so, I mean, I mean, what are you really going to get from, you know, what he's dealing with? No, I agree. Not much. Now, one primary source we have coming from the Bain household at the time was Margaret's diary. She tended to write in it at varying intervals, filling it with innocuous details. Some recipes, what she did that day, what she yelled at the kids about. However, we do get some more insight into the evil spirit and darkness that people commented her having an obsession with. Like, it's it's nice that we get one direct representation about how she felt. And that's through her diary. And in the diary, she actually refers to Robin as... Um, Belial or Belial, like however you want to pronounce it, it um, it refers to an old Hebrew reference for the son of darkness in the Bible, like a devil of sorts. It could be interpreted two ways. She could be calling him the devil or she could be calling him because Belial is also associated with wickedness or worthlessness. So she's either calling her husband the devil or worthless, or it's like a combination of the two. We don't know the true intention, but she might be referring to him being the devil. I would say that regardless of how you cut it, whether you're on the side of the devil or him being worthless, either way, <laughs> it's just not good things to be saying about your husband. No. But what's really interesting is that, and you have to always con- consider this, in your diary... It is the most pure form of truth. Even though she might be going through some sort of delusions of like what she deems is her reality or whatever, it's still the truth in her eyes. It's her inner monologue. So th- Exactly. So it's the best form of truth and honesty that we can get from her. And that is probably how she viewed her husband. I mean, they. W- it seems like they have been on the outs for a while here. Yeah. And so. she even didn't just call him Belial. She just called him Bell. Like, she even gave her devil husband a nickname. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, and the reason why I lean more towards Margaret meaning it as that he's the devil versus just being worthless or, or evil is because later on in her passages, she also wrote about how she believed that there was an evil force trying to get into her house. And she writes... That this is all over, all over the property, and she needs to cleanse the house of evilness. 
She also believed that there was a satanic spirit within Robin, and she thought he was possessed. So she would perform cleansing rituals on him when he would return from working at the elementary school. I want to put this in here. You do it. You lay it out. Okay. I know we're kind of chalking her up as having like this, well, I am really, a uh, psychotic break and all this other stuff. But what if what she's saying seems a little over the top to us now, but this murder on her family, right? That would kind of indicate that maybe maybe she was waiting for something bad to happen. Did she kind of, is, is it possible that she like foreseen bad things happening to her family? That's a really interesting perspective. Like, she is obsessed with the fact that there was like this evilness on this property because that really began when the family returned to 65 Every Street. And, you know, that's a really interesting perspective. Also, yeah. And also, let's not forget that the tenant moved out. Well, the tenant moved out because they had to. Okay. Never mind. We'll scratch that. <laughs> but but that is interesting. Like, we're, we're kind of saying that maybe she's kind of off the rails a bit. But what if there's somewhat of truth to that? It's like you're saying that maybe this is a truly an Amityville horror scenario where an evil spirit is going to like possess someone and kill the family. I mean, okay. Well, I know that we're a true crime podcast and I like, <laughs> and I don't want to like veer away from that, but maybe she was sensing something. It doesn't mean the devil, but maybe she was just sensing how disconnected they were right. for, uh, from each other and how things were just getting really bad. I don't know. Like, Maybe she just felt something. I don't know. And sometimes, you know, people do have intuitions as to, like, is something bad going to happen in the foreseeable future? Yeah. I don't know. Just a thought. Or maybe this is something that she's recognizing potentially in her husband, that he has this evilness inside him or this ability to go evil or this tendency to get angry. And it's not necessarily that he's possessed but that he has this anger and resentment building up inside him that might be unleashed. It's quite possible. Yeah. It's very interesting, right? It is. So, to say the least, the early 1990s in the Bain house were a bit tumultuous. The house itself had fallen into disrepair. It was dilapidated and falling apart. Although years prior the Bains had made the home livable, no further repairs had been completed. In addition, collections of items littered most of the rooms in the home and the kitchen and the bathroom were never looked after. The relationships of the family inside mirrored that of the home they lived in. Utter disrepair. Margaret and Robin were just passing ships. There was barely a relationship there anymore. Margaret had confided in a friend that she wanted a divorce, but Robin was holding out and wouldn't let her go. She also stayed because she felt and sensed that Stephen still needed his father in his life. The children mostly avoided the home to escape the clutter and the strangeness of their parents' marriage and their mother constantly asking them to clean the home. See, it's funny that the, the cleaning standards changed for Margaret when she no longer was the one who was responsible for the cleaning. Of course. I mean, who wants to do that, right? Right. <laughs> Nobody likes cleaning, but we have to do it. <laughs> yes. I actually thoroughly enjoy cleaning. Okay. Well, then then you are the... A weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We'll I'm go with that. I'm very strange. We'll go with that. So the plan was not to stay in that house for very long. 
the town had basically written a letter to the family saying that the home either needed to be repaired or demolished. The Baines decided that they would purchase another property on every street and demolish the home they were currently living in and sell the property. Their children were getting older so they could downsize. So, the plan was formulated by Margaret that all of the children, plus Robin, were going to work together tirelessly for one year to build a new home. Well, everyone except for Arwa, who at that point was doing phenomenally in school. So she was going to let her study, but everyone else had to work on building the home. So at this point, the children are deep into their teenage years. David, who had always had a hard time academically in school, is going to find a wonderful outlet through the theater program. It is there that he finally finds an accepting group of friends. In year 12, which is like our junior year of high school in the United States, he landed the role of Captain Van Trapp in The Sound of Music. He also participated in cross country, which is like, you know, track. Yeah, I know what cross country is. Oh. <laughs> Thanks, Kay. <laughs> Sorry, I was just explaining it. Uh, it seemed as if he... Cross country is probably so... <laughs> I don't know why I'm like... Uh, I don't know why I felt like I needed to explain I, I to don't know. <laughs> Cross country is probably so much nicer in New Zealand than it is in New Jersey. Well, it's, well I'm sure it's very scenic. So <laughs> The landscape is very different. Yes. So it seemed as if he was finding his place and it was building his confidence, which was great. Um, something very interesting about David is that all of the people that worked with him within the theater community, they said that he was very quiet, painfully kind of like shy, but then when he, and awkward, and then when he stepped on stage, it was like, boom, he turned into a whole different person. That's very interesting, actually. But those are always, I feel like those people are the ones that, you know, excel in like theater and things like that. They're able to just put another face on and and do very well. So when it came to his home life, people who knew him commented that David was very close with his mother. And that if his parents ever argued or disagreed in front of the children, he would always take his mother's side. His friends during this time would later say that he exhibited some odd behavior, and they felt that he was controlled a little too much by his mother. He also seemed to be completely naive about the culture in New Zealand, just in general. Some female classmates said that when David showed interest in them, he would become obsessive calling them all the time and wanting to know where they were when they weren't with him. When the girls would tell him that they didn't like this, he would just cut them off completely and never speak to them again. Then he made some, well, several disturbing statements to his male friends about a female jogger in his neighborhood that had a regular routine, which involved her jogging past his home. Okay. He told them that he wanted to and would be able to rape her and get away with it. Oh, okay. That's not your normal conversation starter? No, that's not usually what you tell your friends. No. Um, He also explained to them that he had the whole thing planned. And he went in and explained to them the whole elaborate plan that he would go through in committing the crime. And how he would get away with it. I, maybe this is a stretch, but I feel like that kind of behavior into like saying that he would want to rape somebody and have a plan for it. I, to me, it seems like a like a way of trying to grasp control. 
This kid's never had control in his whole life, ever. His mother is domineering and literally makes him do whatever she wants. So I feel like maybe that would lead to talk like that. I don't know. Right. I don't know. Because how likely is it that you are going to commit a crime that you say you're going to get away with, but then tell two people about? Like, is this a bizarre way? Is this the way he thinks he could sound cool in front of guys? Well, he's also not really... Because I feel like his social awkwardness is... Well, obviously, I was just going to say, I I think he's social and doesn't understand the parameters in which you speak to another individual. But no matter how socially awkward you are, like, you know that that is wrong. Yes, maybe you and I know that. No, but, like, anyone, like, even someone who's socially awkward and, like, wants to seem cool in front of their friends, like, I would see a teenage boy saying, like... Like, lying and saying, oh, I have sex with that girl. No, I understand what you're saying Not, completely. I'm going to rape her. Here's my elaborate plan that <laughs> yeah. I thought up. Like, that's a little bit sociopathic to Right, me. 100%. I, I'm not discrediting what you're saying, but you have to understand that unless we were a fly on the wall inside that home for all these years, we don't know what's going on in there. No, it's true. I know what you're saying. But I do agree with you in that maybe his tendency or desire to commit rape against a female would be because of his manipulative controlling behavior from his mother yeah yeah i mean that we see that time and time again kind of play out when it comes to serial rapists or murderers especially those who are sexual sadists and their relationship with a domineering mother that's very true bizarre very and um that little anecdote from two people so it is corroborated by two people he told this story to is very strange and disturbing it is so david went on to the university of otago where he wanted to get his zoologist degree he also continued with his love of theater getting involved in a group called opera alive that held various productions throughout the year here he had a little more trouble fitting in And it has been said that David was the butt of many jokes, but that he usually rolled with it because he wanted to be liked. It does seem like this is like the perfect like stew for somebody who has a lot of anger. Yeah. And no way to release it. Yeah. You see, like we can't sit here and say he did. He's not trying to find avenues to release because. Well, I think through theater, he's theater. Right. Exactly. Through theater. But he's met with roadblocks there as well by not being able to fit in socially. That creates even more um, pressure in the pot. You know, like, you know, it's ready to go off. So I agree. He's met at every turn with a roadblock that he can't seem to overcome. And that's going to create anger to the highest level possible. Right. Because I think you bring up a good point. He really did have trouble connecting with people, even within the theater program. Once um, he wrote this letter, this like gushing letter to a member of the like opera live group. And he was just, you know, saying how much he loved him, what great of an actor he was, the influence that he had on him and how much he helped him during the production And the guy who received the letter thought it was bizarre because he had never even spoken with David. So it was just he would do strange things like that. And another example, which is very interesting and I want you to keep in the back of your mind for part two, is 
an incident that occurred while he was rehearsing for the play Godspell with the group he was working with. David went into a fit of convulsions on stage. A nurse who was actually just happened to be there um, because she was watching her boyfriend kind of perform had observed his behavior and thought the way he was acting was very strange and kind of noticed right away that he wasn't truly convulsing or having any other type of medical fit. During the fit, David was muttering about the hands are coming to get me. He said that several times. The hands are coming to get me. And the other actors were disturbed by this. I mean, they thought that he was like having a seizure of some sort. And the nurse did step in. David stopped immediately as soon as the nurse stepped in. And later she calmed down the shaken up cast by like telling them, I don't think that was real. Like he definitely wasn't convulsing because that was if he was faking it because the symptoms, they just didn't line up. Like the way he was still present mentally looking around and stuff shows that he wasn't having like a a seizure. So you think that he was acting? That he was faking that. And that event happened in 1993. Put a red flag on this, actually. Okay. And I'm going to put a red flag on this because, you know, whatever's going to take place moving forward, his actions by acting this out might show that he's capable of, like, bigger crimes, maybe, and even maybe lying about things and trying to play it off as if it's truth. Right. Okay, so it's here at the red flag that we are actually going to take a break and we are going to hear from our final sponsor of the show. Also during 1993, Arwa is enrolled in a teacher's college. Stephen, the youngest child, is in high school and having a difficult time, as is his older sister, Leniette. Arwa had a difficult time socially. She was very popular in school and got wonderful grades, but kids still talked about how they would never stay the night at Arwa's house because it was so filthy and it smelled weird. Just just terrible for the children. Once she started college, she was rarely home. Leniette rebelled immediately from her parents and their religious lifestyle um, because, you know, there was many issues with Leniette that we will get into. Um, and she's a very interesting piece of the Bain family puzzle. During her time in school, she had told a teacher that she had been raped while the family lived in Papua New Guinea. Now, we know the family left in 1988, so the oldest Leniette was, was 12 years old. She said that she had been raped and gotten pregnant from the rape. Okay. Now, there's two directions we could go in here. If you recall, when I said the family left Papua New Guinea because of raising crime rates and somebody they knew had gotten raped. So either it was Leniette who actually truly did get raped or she was just saying that that happened to her because she remembers hearing about it. And this is attention seeking behavior. I don't know if it's attention seeking behavior. I mean, it's a possibility, right? Well, wait, let me go further before, because there's the story is a little bit more than that, than her just saying it was her. Okay. Because she said that she had been raped and she got pregnant from the rape. 
not saying that a 12 year old couldn't get pregnant because obviously we don't know if she was menstruating or sorry you know to get into that kind of detail but like we don't know if she could have but she it is a potentiality but the racial identity of the baby de- changed depending on the person she told the story to okay and other times she would tell people that she had been raped and gotten pregnant but she was forced by her parents to get an abortion and other times she said you know she had the baby and gave the baby up for adoption um and she said that the people that she told that her parents forced her to get an abortion which is highly unlikely because of how religious they were uh, she said that she felt so badly about the abortion that she had attempted suicide but when those the teachers that heard that reported that to the school and the nurse checked her she had no scars on her wrists so she's telling several stories about this and when I say attention-seeking behavior, I don't mean that she's just m- making it up. Leniette also is going to make the claim that her father, Robin, is sexually molesting her. Later on in her life, she's going to make this claim. So sometimes what we can see in schools is that children will do or say things that are seeking attention because they want to draw attention to what's truly happening in their lives. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I, I would just say that <clears throat> maybe she is telling the truth, but it's shrouded and covered by just a lot of lies and misguided stories. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because, look, that would be an indication of why they left um, where they were. Right. It would give a reason as to why they would leave. So... I think that that is truth, but all the other stuff leading after the rape could just be a fabrication. So I think there is a truth to be told there, and we should we shouldn't write it off. We should hold that to and keep it off to the side. Right, this whole thing needs to be held off to the side because it's really complicated. And I think the addition of the claim of her saying that her father had been molesting her is very interesting and could explain why these stories were made up. I mean, and if we're just, you know, in isolation, taking the incident that happened in Papua New Guinea about a family friend, at worst, it really happened to her. And at best, she experienced a traumatic event at 12 years old, seeing or knowing of someone who had been brutally raped and assaulted. So it's a complicated thing. And then if we add the layer of the accusation later on in life, it could answer some questions, but it's just a a very interesting addition to this puzzle that we have. Yeah, I think there is trauma there, and that would cause her to rebel and to disconnect from her family. So I I think even better just to say, like, regardless of, of if the rape happened to her or she witnessed it or she just knew of someone else and she, you know, whatever, that creates the trauma so that would make her want to separate and be off on her own and and not be involved with the family anymore especially if she's being abused in the family as well right so i think that's the biggest takeaway from that that we can you know get now at the age of 16 she actually leaves the house and lives elsewhere so she 
basically becomes a runaway at the age of 16. And she leaves immediately following an argument that she had with David that almost got physical. We learn later that this argument happened because she was defending her father against the rest of the family. That's interesting. Very. Especially if there is, like, the molestation is taking place. We still don't know. That is a total and complete unknown to us, whether or not that truly took place. So it's a very sensitive topic. Yeah, I think I think the story needs to unfold more before we can say for certain if, if that took place. Or even make the the guess as to whether or not it did. Yeah. Now, when it comes to the fight that she had with her family, especially the one with David, we don't know how serious that was or how much it really contributed to her leaving the house. Because when she does move out, she David is going to help her with the move. So I don't think they were... She didn't leave the house with bad blood with David, is what I'm trying to say. Now, this, as you can imagine, living on your own is difficult and expensive. And it caused Lynette to fall into the world of prostitution while living at a boarding house. That's really sad. Yes. While working as a sex worker, she made many claims, none of which have been substantiated or corroborated. So again... All of her claims allegedly took place according to her. She told many that Margaret and David were trying to get rid of Robin. And the reason why they were trying to get rid of him was because he didn't share the same beliefs as them when it came to like the evilness in the house, the evil spirits and things like that. And they also considered him to be lazy. Just the ghost of a presence, she said to many people. She also claimed that Robin had been molesting her for years and that her mother did know about it, but didn't say anything. Now, this is something that I found interesting just in reading everything I did about this case, because Margaret herself has made claims that she was abused by her father. So I want to say, would a mother that had that happen to her herself sit back while her husband did that to one of her daughters? I want to say no, but I also know that Margaret is not a conventional mother in the sense of the word. 100%. So I I don't know and I can't make these. Of course, I would want her to stop it if she knew it was happening or if it was happening, but I don't know. We just, it's the most infuriating things about some of these cases is that we just don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's what makes mysteries just so intriguing i think to a lot of people because you don't know so lenniette wanted to keep her new profession a secret from her very religious parents because she did still go home occasionally to visit them but she never wanted to let them know what she was doing she did confide in other sex workers and to a man that was a frequent customer of hers that her pimp was threatening to tell her parents what she did and threatening to show them pictures if she didn't stop doing sexual favors for him on the side. Um, Favors that she implied were very violent. So it seemed as if she might have been blackmailed by this man. It sucks because she's just so vulnerable. And she's so young. Yeah, yeah. She also told the same client that she was scared of him, meaning like this pimp that was blackmailing her like she was scared of her brother david that's interesting it's very interesting 
And we don't know how much of these details are true, but what we do know is that Lenniette suffered from very low self-esteem issues, and she had a very difficult time. And, you know, she is a very interesting and key piece to the puzzle that would give us all of the answers, I feel. I feel like she's the key to the mystery, but we just don't know enough. Yeah, I also find it interesting that she's scared of David because I I don't want to keep bringing this up because we have no idea, but I, I think this is the last time I'll mention it. If the father did indeed rape her, right? Yeah. Wouldn't she be afraid of her father more than David? Unless David was somehow involved in sexually assaulting her as well. Well, I think it might be removed. Or, or physical, like physical violence towards her maybe in the house. I don't know. Like it might be completely removed from the sexual assault. And many psychologists in dealing with um, sexual molestation cases that deal with incestuous molestation, they do say that many times the victim will feel very close to their abuser, that they will mistake what's happening to them for love. And that might be one of the reasons maybe I'm just, you know, I don't know what happened. I'm just, this is me speculating, but that Leniette always defended her father and why she was kind of the enemy when it came to the rest of her family and why David might have aggressions towards her. That's a good point too. And also, yeah. And David and David's with the mom. Correct. And, you know, they're like to the, you know, they're like conjoined at the tip. So. so like by proxy, they are enemies of each other because they support opposing parents. I see what you're saying. That's a good point. So now let's go on to Stephen. Stephen, the youngest of the Bain children, had gotten himself into some trouble with the law. He and a group of friends had been caught stealing, but it was nothing very serious. At school, he was described as tenacious and quick tempered. He was really quick to get physical at school with anyone that bothered him. A former principal kind of had this to say about the Bain children, and I feel like he really hit the nail on the head here. And This was a very observant man. He said that Stephen was tough and wiry. Leniette had no self-esteem, which was reflected in her behavior. Arwa was a wonderful student and person, but her home, their home, was a dump which made it hard for her to focus. David had a bit of a different grasp on reality, but despite his delusions of grandeur, he was somehow cunning and streetwise. Ooh, that like sent chills down my spine. You know what's great? His his description of all of the children are so precise mm-hmm. and probably accurate. <laughs> you know, Because he is observing from afar, and he's been able to see all of them while the whole time observing the behavior of the parents. Because of Margaret, he said, Margaret had delusions about her abilities, so she rarely listened to the school's recommendations that they gave for the children. Very interesting. Yeah. So by 1993, Robin had moved into a house that was located on the school's property, now only coming home occasionally. Hmm. Robin never kept any paperwork, and as a teacher and principal, I'll tell you that's not good. Uh, One time, someone from the Educational Review Office came to observe him, um, the school, his classroom, and they found that no paperwork, not even um, for his, like, present classes or for the school had ever been submitted, 
and that his class was completely chaotic. This was all called into question. He said that his method was unconventional and that he never wrote anything down because everything the kids did was like at their own level and there were no grades, but he had them in his head. So um, obviously the school went into review after this. Yeah, I would hope so. That was pretty bad. Uh, During this time, some colleagues described him as uh, being a little dead behind the eyes. He lost a lot of weight. He was almost like non-existent. And he was like a ghost of his former self. It's the second time that that's been mentioned. They oh, Everyone always describes him that way. I feel like that's the trend in this story so far is everyone keeps on talking about their cleanliness and the way that they look and everything. It's Yeah, and it's, how David is wasting away. It's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. You almost wonder, is maybe he's sick or something. Yeah. There's something going on. <laughs> So at 18, Lenia is going to stop her work as a sex worker. Um, This is for many reasons. She really does want to turn her life around. She only did it because she felt like her life, she needed that in the situation she was in. And she was starting to get money from um, the government at the age of 18. So it kind of allowed her to stop doing that. But she didn't want to move home just yet. Instead, she and a friend moved in with her father well in regards to the sexual abuse that we still don't know whether or not it's true i think it would be an interesting choice to move in with the person that is abusing you um maybe she moved and now let's go through the perspective of it did happen maybe she moved in with a friend because she thought that would protect her or maybe she truly did feel like her abuser loved her it's her father after all It's very complicated and we don't know. But when asked, the friend would later say on the stand during trial that she didn't witness anything abnormal between the relationship between Robin and Lynette. Like everything seems kind of like copacetic. Okay. You know what, too? You have to think her decision to go with her father could also just be because she realizes that there might be something seriously wrong with her mother. Yeah. And maybe that's not the best place to be. Right. I don't know. Like it's... Out of desperation, she just right. picked the worst of the two, maybe, you're saying? It's, yeah. I mean, the best the of best the two. The best of the two, yeah. yeah. It's a possibility. Now, another side of the argument is a friend of David's who was going to also take the stand during uh, the first trial. And he said that he was supposed to meet David for lunch, but he never showed up. Instead, Leniette showed up looking for him because she knew David was supposed to be meeting him for lunch. And she told the friend that she was looking for David because she needed David to advocate for her to their mother because she wanted to return home because she couldn't stand what he was doing to her. Now, we don't know who she's referring to here. She could be referring to her father and maybe he has started the abuse again. Or she could be referring to the the pimp that was blackmailing her. Like, oh, I just want to move home because I want to come clean about everything that I had done. So we don't know who she was referring to, but that statement was made to David's friend. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's really hard because I everything that we're saying, it, it really hinges on whether or not 
the father has sexually assaulted his daughter. Right. Everything else is kind of like everything that follows. It's like, is it just a, a, a seeking attention? Is she also dealing with her own psychopathy or whatever you want to call it? Like, what's going on? Like, we don't know. It's hard because I feel that this case is linear until we get to the point where Lynette claims that Robin is molesting her. And then I feel like the case deviates down two paths, that either one thing could be true or another thing can be true. And if we knew the answer to whether or not that was taking place, that would really help us come to a a more well-rounded conclusion as to who the killer of this family was. I agree. And and it's so interesting because you, you really did hit the nail on the head. I think she really is the key to all the hidden secrets behind closed doors here. Yeah. That would really paint a really accurate picture of what might have happened to this family moving forward. I agree. Now, we also have a friend just before the crimes were committed that said Arwa asked her friend if they would ride home with her because David was supposed to be picking her up and she didn't want to get in the car with him by herself. Okay. Interesting. So now we have both sisters that are a little intimidated by their brother. Their older brother. Very weird. So now we're leading up to the weekend of the murders. Lynette had told people mixed things. One was that she was going to start fresh. Her brother David wanted to have a family get together that weekend. Now, I think that's interesting. And and put that, like, star that, bookmark that. David wanted to have a get together that weekend. For what purpose for to get the family together again the the family was really focused at this point on getting everything out of that house and getting it prepared for it to be demolished because they were going to be building the second house okay so that was the pretense of talking about the plan of the building of the second house okay she said to several people that she was going to come clean about her sex work and the incestuous relationship that she had going on with her father so she could start it all anew. Now, could that be a catalyst for what happens? Happens, Maybe. On the other hand, she didn't mention the incestuous part of the relationship to another person. She told them, oh, I'm just coming clean about the sex work. So I don't know who she's... She's telling some people about the incestuous relationship and some people she's not, but those people might not even know about that. So we don't know. She had been working at a cafe and she was due to start a telemarketing job on the 20th, the day the murders are discovered. So David himself had just changed his studies in college to reflect his interest in music and mythology. And he had a new friend, Harriet who he was taking things slowly with, but was enjoying spending a lot of time with her. David revealed to a friend that the plan for the family was to build on their existing lot now. Like they didn't, they were going to build on their existing lot. No longer another property on the same street. And he said like the house was going to be in the back corner of the lot and the front part was going to be more like a guard, a sanctuary like garden where you could go to escape the world. Because that had been his mother's dream. 
Okay. Hey, whatever floats your boat. Whatever you want. And he was excited about building all of this, but he wished his father would realize that nobody wanted him around. This is what he told a friend. It's it's crazy. Like It's almost like David has taken the role of the father. Yeah. Yeah. So um, he said the, the real reason why Margaret kind of allowed Robin to continue being around was because Stephen needed a father figure. He also said the reason he fought with Lynette was because she stuck up for Robin all the time. Now, Arwa had lunch with a friend and told him that she wanted to move out of the house. She always had been very closed off with her friends when talking about her family or her living situation because it was something she was very self-conscious about. But she did open up to a friend at lunch the day before the murders and said that her father and sister were back at the house. So now at this point, we have Leniette and Robin living back at the house at Every Street. And she said, it's the same old tension and I want to get out. So she talked to her friend about moving into his apartment with him and his other like flatmates and her being a new roommate. I mean, things that then in that case, then in that case, things have to be really bad then. Yes. She seemed very determined to leave the house, he said. Wow. Which is a shame. So Robin also had an interesting conversation with a boarder of the new house on the school's property because, of course, he moved back to every street to kind of prepare for this new house build. So a new tenant is living on the house on the school's property. And he asked him about what kind of firearm to use in the school garden to get rid of possums and rabbits. He asked if a twenty-two would be quieter and not disturb the neighbors. Now, this is something that's interesting because David did go out hunting rabbits and possums, and he used a twenty-two rifle with a silencer on it. Robin didn't own guns and hadn't ever owned a gun, but David did. It's weird to ask that question. Very. Because we're also talking about a school, uh, a firearm by a school. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, it's a different time. Uh, we're talking, you know, pre-Columbine. It's not like a personal firearm. It's like we're having rabbits kind of eat the garden of the school. So, like, can we get rid of them? So right. it wasn't like, hey, I want to have a gun to protect me at a school. It was like in regards to the grounds of the school. I got you. So the tenant told him, like, he didn't really answer his question. He said, just don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. And then Robin said to him, I'll see you on Monday, which was June 20th, the day the bodies were discovered. Now, from there, Robin headed to the house on every street. He was working on gutting the property with his children. So that Sunday, Robin, David, and Stephen, actually, they were kind of all in a good mood. They went, uh, David and Stephen wanted to participate in a polar plunge, and Robin took them to do it. And they were all, like, laughing and jovial at this time. Well, finally, some happiness in this family. Yeah, but the following <laughs> day, there would only be one person left in the family. It's crazy. Right? 
So finally, I talked about some happiness in the family, and here comes the death. Well, that was short-lived. Yeah. <laughs> All right. The next we hear from the Bain family is through a 111 call placed by 22-year-old David Bain at 7.09 a.m. on June 20th, 1994. David screamed on the phone to the operator in a distraught voice that his family was all dead. As the operator asked David questions, he answered them coherently and completely the first time they were asked, despite the fact that he was carrying on and crying and screaming on the line when no questions were being asked. He was told by the operator that emergency services were on their way. Of course, his behavior during the 111 call, that sounds so weird to say, um, was called into question because most emergency calls when there's a debate as to what happened in a case are going to be called into question. And later on, the operator is going to take a stand in the trial and they're going to say that they found it odd because usually when people were in such emotional distress, they couldn't answer simple questions. But David seemed to be on point and responsive completely, almost like he went in and out of like the trauma of screaming and upset and then answer a question and then back into it. Right. That's the way they explained it. I mean, listen, I, I still need to listen to that 911 call, but based on... It's online, so... Okay, well, based on the 111 operator, I mean, it's possible that he could have just been taken off guard by David, you know? But it is interesting that he was clear and precise when asked questions because if you walked in uh, uh you know if you call and you are telling them that you're you know people are, are are dead i need assistance you i doubt that you would be able to be calm and you'd probably right. have to be asked that question several times like you know the who what when and where type of thing they need to make sure that they have the proper information to send out you know paramedics police whatever they need to know all these things so for that, for him to kind of rattle off everything so clear and precise, right? That I, I could see why that would be a red flag to the operator, and it becomes even more of a red flag later on because of his actions at the crime scene once emergency response teams are there, because you're like, wow, if this guy is this emotionally distraught, then how did he even speak on a telephone? Right. I'm gonna call into question this whole phone call and it goes back to when he was having the convulsions on the floor and pretending. Oh, well, don't worry. That happens again too. Oh, fantastic. I can't wait. Mm -hmm. So emergency services arrive at the Bain residence 10 minutes after the call was placed. There is no response at the door. So officers with emergency services behind them search around the house to see if they can find the caller inside or potentially a person in distress because then they would still have they would have cause to enter the home the first person they see is david and that's because if you're looking at the outside of the house the first window that would be like to your left would be david's room so it made sense that they saw him right away they were looking at david in through his bedroom window and he was curled up on the floor crying when they called out to him, he just started screaming that his family was dead. 
They asked him if he could get up and open the door for them, but it seemed as if he was unable to do so because he was so distraught. Like, dude, just get up and answer the door. Yeah. <laughs> I they don't need know. To, they need to come in. Yeah. Um, so they had to break a pane of glass in order to gain entry into the home. Isn't that crazy, though? It's a little interesting because usually emergency response teams are going to say, whether it's a police officer or paramedics, that usually people come out to get them because they like are so desperate to have someone else there to help them with the situation or they're eager to leave the house. I agree. Plus, I mean, I will say that 10 minutes to get there is very, very fast. Yeah. But even so, he could, you know, potentially you could have a messed up crime scene now because this person's been in there for 10 minutes after the phone call has been placed doing God knows what. Well, especially even, if you think they're the ones that did it. Especially if you think it's he's the guy that did it. So, But now you that whole crime scene's messed up. Footprints everywhere. You never know. Well, yeah. Well, he has to discover the bodies too, you know. I mean, that is true. Don't forget. I'm just trying to say evidence is well all of that trace evidence would be thrown out the window in court anyway because he, because lives, there. he lives there yeah unless there's blood evidence with it which we'll get into okay so once they enter the first door the first person they go to see is david because they know he's alive and they want to make sure he's okay and they also want to get all of the information they can from him so when you walk in the front door there's a small entryway and further into the entryway, you are greeted by a hallway. It's not like you walk into a living room. You walk in and there's two bedrooms on either side of you. Um, the first thing they notice is the clutter. There were things everywhere. And the home appeared to not have been cleaned in quite some time. Next was the smell. The air seemed to be thick with it. It was like a musty, rotting smell. And that's not from the bodies. Uh, okay. Yeah. To the left was David's room, where he was crumbled on the floor. David was checked on by paramedics, and one officer stayed with him as the other responding officers checked on the remainder of the house. Before they had left the room, David did point out that the room across from his own had the body of his father. The officers walked into the adjacent room and found 58-year-old Robin Bain lying on the floor. He had a gunshot wound to his left temple and a 22 Winchester rifle with a silencer laying next to him. The scope was on the ground, laying near the weapon. They reached down to touch the body, to check for a pulse, and there clearly wasn't one. However, they did note that he was very warm, as if he had just, only moments prior to their arrival, been shot. So the picture that I have in front of me here that I'm kind of getting from this is that it looks like Robin took out his whole family and killed himself. Yeah. So murder-suicide. I don't know what to make of that. I would need to know where David's, like, whereabouts, you know, where where was he? You know, what was happening? I don't know. Well, first let's get into the rest of the discoveries. Oh, okay, okay. Okay. The officers left the room and headed further down the hall. Just beyond the first two sets of rooms, there were another two set of rooms, also across from one another. 
And of course, we will post the photos on the Instagram account. There's been like diagrams drawn of the house and where the bodies were found. They went into the room on the left first. Instead of a door, there was a curtain blocking the doorway. They moved it aside and they found another body. This was the bedroom of 18-year-old Leniette Bain. She was laying underneath her duvet in bed. She too had been shot. As is protocol, they checked for a pulse. She had none, but she was cold to the touch. Very different from Robin. Next, they went into the room across the hall. This was the room of Margaret Bain. She, like her daughter, was underneath the covers, still in bed. This room was unlike the others because it was piled with things. There was like, they said something like six dressers, like two wardrobes and clothes everywhere. And the only way a person could walk in that room was through created pathways through the things. It was kind of like a hoarder's bedroom. That's insane. And one pathway led to the bed and the other pathway led to kind of like a doorway that was closed by a curtain. They assumed it was a, a, a like a closet. Okay. So next to the bed was the Bain family dog who was barking at the officers. But before they could even try and calm down the dog or call for David's help, David called the dog. And the dog calmed down and then just kind of like left the room and presumably went to David. Hmm. Margaret was also cold to the touch like her daughter was. At the end of the hallway, there was one more room and it appeared to be a family room of sorts, but there was no body in the room. Walking back down the hallway, they were going to descend the stairs to the lower level of the house. The stairway entry is just after David's room in front of the house. And when they went down the stairs, they headed left first. They were greeted by a filthy kitchen that had so many dishes that they were piled on a bench beside the sink. There was no body, of course, in the kitchen or the laundry room, but they did note that there was a room to the right of the stairs as soon as you came down, so they went to check. This was the room of Arwa. She was positioned very differently than the others, in a way that suggested she had been awake during her murder. She was laying on her back, but her legs were behind her, as if she was kneeling at the time she was shot. And fell backwards. That's crazy. Okay. Yeah, because, I mean, it's it's like a lot of other cases where how can one person, let's say, take out all these people and not no, not one person woke up? So in this case, it looks it's like... It's clear that someone did. Someone did. And Arwa may have been the only person... Well, we'll get into this. But she knew who her killer was. I'm sure. She had to have. Because she was on her knees begging for her life before she was shot in the head. Wow. My God. Yeah. The officers started heading upstairs. When they reached David's room, they were surprised to find that he was still going through fits and screaming. Yeah, it seems like an act to me. <laughs> we found four bodies, they said. No, that isn't right, the officer in the room with David said. We got him to tell us there's six members of the family, including him. So there should be five bodies. There should be one more. 
Steven. Oh my god, yeah, we keep forgetting about Steven in this story, I feel like. Oh, poor Steven. Poor Steven. So they did another sweep of the house. And remember in Margaret's room where there was a curtain that they thought was a closet? Yeah. Well, technically it was supposed to be a closet because it was the size as like of what a walk-in closet would be. That was Steven's room. So he has like a Harry Potter room under the stairs kind of thing. Yeah. Think about how unhealthy this is. That a 14-year-old boy's bedroom can only be accessed through the bedroom of his mother. Very odd. And Lynette's door also didn't have a door, just a curtain. It seems like punishment of sort. Yeah, in a way. 14-year-old Stephen Bain was found lying on the ground of his bedroom. He was wearing black underwear and had a blood-soaked white t-shirt around his neck. His right arm was still in the sleeve, and it seemed like during the struggle, the shirt had been taken off or like they were attempting to take it off of Stephen to disorient and suffocate him. His hair was saturated with blood, and he also had smeared blood on his hands and his left leg. The soles of his feet were covered in blood, and he had scrapes and scratches all over his body. And he had abrasions on his shin and his elbow. He also had two diamond-shaped abrasions on the back of his legs, and this was later determined to be from the dresser handles. He had a bullet wound through his right hand. He must have been trying to shield himself, and in a way he had been successful, because the bullet that tore through his hand only grazed the right side of his head. But even though it was a graze, it was deep and it caused a lot of bleeding. Another bullet wound, the one that killed him, was at the top of his head. His sheets had a lot of blood at their center, so it had implied that he had been alive when he was first shot. So what I think happened with Stephen was that he heard the shots from Lynette and his mother. Obviously, he's in, basically in the same room as his mother, so he was awake. And when the person went to shoot him, he went to block it with his hand and the hands got the brunt of the shot. And then when his head was only grazed, he was fighting with the killer. And the fight is why the soles of his feet had blood all over them. His body had blood smears and he had bruises and cuts and scrapes all over him and the impressions of the drawer handle because he was fighting with his attacker. And, yeah. and they tried to, like, suffocate him with his shirt. You know what's interesting about Stephen's murder and his whole, like, area mm -hmm. uh, where the scene took place? It's It reminds me... All right, let's take the gun out of the equation here for one second. Okay. It seems like that scene is like a scuffle between brothers. Yeah. That's what it seems like to me, right? He has all defensive scrapes and, 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 and cuts on his body. Mm-hmm which would indicate that he had a physical struggle with his attacker. And the only reason why he was outdone was because they had a gun, <laughs> you know, and he was overpowered. But it seems like it was like a scuffle amongst brothers or someone of, of close equal. age. Yeah. Or someone who might be older but might be extremely emaciated, like oh, his that's, father. That's true, too. That's true. But it seems like if all of these cuts and abrasions are on Steven, that they most likely would also be on his attacker. Correct? 
Not necessarily. Okay. Not necessarily. If they're, if they, think about it. If they were covered? Maybe they're covered. Also, when you have the gun, you could use the gun because I know it's more, it's like a rifle. It's a, it's a, uh, it's, it's a rifle gun. So you're able to kind of use it as leverage to like, you know, you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Like, I can't really, using my words, I can't no, really I depict this. But like, imagine if someone was coming at you. Um, trying to wrestle the gun from you. Now you're also going to use that gun as a way to push back, like taking it from side to side and like trying to use it to push against the person you're trying to attack. I get it. You know, especially after the first two bullets, you definitely kill have, shots. You have the upper hand. Correct, and that would. Well, no, the first one isn't a kill shot. The second one was. Oh, okay. I thought the second one grazes. Oh no, the first one grazed his head through his hand. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So the Stephen crime scene is definitely going to be huge during the case. See, it's so funny. I think that uh, Lineat is prior, prior to the murder, so important, and Stephen during the murder is so important. Yeah, for sure. Now, it appeared that David's proclamation during the call he placed was correct. His whole family was dead. His mother, his father, his sister Arwa who had so desperately wanted to leave the house, was now dead in the basement bedroom that she had always lived in and his two younger siblings. While processing the scene where Robin was found, it was also discovered that the computer in the room with him was on. Once the screen loaded, they discovered one sentence scrolled across the screen. Sorry, it read. You are the only one who deserved to stay. What a last, like, statement to make. So that was essentially what they believed to be Robin's suicide note. And when he says, you're the only one who deserved to stay, they believe he's implying David. This is going to be insane moving forward. Hugely insane. Which is why it totally deserves to be a two-parter because... I couldn't only just get... We were, we were talking about a five hours of episode here. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> we need yeah. more time to go over everything that... All of the evidence. And in the second part of this episode, we're going to cover the two trials that followed these murders. And as Van Bayen states in his book, Black Hands, this case is fascinating in both its complexity and its simplicity. When you have a whodunit, there are usually several or endless possibilities of what could happen. But here, there are only two, David or Robin. That's it. Yeah. Isn't that funny that we're not even even coming up with the possibility that somebody random could have no, done this. It's we, just them. It's like we already know, no, it's someone within this family. Yes. It is David or it is Robin, and you have to interpret the evidence and the familial relationships. And that's why I felt like it was so key to really spend the first part of this episode going over the family dynamic of the Bain family because it is super important. No, it 100% is. It's, I think, moving forward, it's going to be able to piece a lot of the holes that we might have in this mystery, which is what I'm totally, like, I'm. it's hinged on that, and I'm totally in on this. I'm trying to think, of, I'm going to try to remember and write down everything that was, that I 
thought of while you were going over this and i'm going to try <laughs> to use it into the second part so it's exciting yeah it is i actually have some stuff written down right now <laughs> and then uh, yeah if you heard maniac scribbling it was john during the episode <laughs> i i have chicken scratch so no, yeah no it's good you're taking notes in this you're case like i student. have to yeah like this case i have to do it in the next episode we're going to go through the evidence found by the crime scene analysts and the conclusion of the case that still plagues new zealand but before we go we have a lot of people to thank we have a lot of new Patreon supporters. Look at this list. Wow. I think this is the longest list we've ever had. I think so. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So please also forgive me if I pronounce your name wrong. If I do a terrible job, just send us a message on Patreon. I'll redo it. Give me a redemption time. So we want to thank tremendously from the bottom of our hearts, Lisa Elliott, Kateri Lee, Megan Glazner, Michael Ray, Jennifer Bales, Angela May, Nikki, Dave and Stacy, Anna C. Brooks, Yasmin Burrito Clemstead, Kristen bought a 10 month membership for a year. So thank you, Kristen, for that. Yes, thank you. Brandy and Amagua, Abigail Webster, Donna Goldman, Allison Adams, Maria Canito, James Harrington, Kelly Rate, Carolyn Arbuckle, Tanya Maluski, Abraham Hale, Chloe Eakston, Michelle Rosenberg, Kaylee Cousins, Lynn Olive, Stephanie Dewey, Angela May upped her pledge. Amanda Winters, Bronte Smith, Lisa C., Brittany, Colleen Braun, Gygus Bijus, Christopher Levies, Laura St. Pierre, Sophia Bookwood, Peggy Womble, Michael Ryan, and Ben Streeter. Thank you all so much for joining Patreon, and we hope you're enjoying our 61 plus episodes we have up there for you and next week our patreon supporters will not just get the second part of the bane family murders but another patreon episode all right guys we will see you next week bye guys take care guys